With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. There's a city in Michigan called Battle Creek, and until the late 1800s, it wasn't known for much. There were two rivers in the middle of town. One of them was more like a creek. It was home to many Seventh-day Adventists. And in the 1890s, there were also two brothers living there. The older of the two, by eight years, John Harvey Kellogg, was one of the most famous physicians in the country, if not the world. Howard Markell has written a book about the Kelloggs called The Battling Brothers of Battle Creek. That would be Will and John Harvey. John Harvey was the golden child. He, everything he did was great. He went away to New York to medical school, to the Bellevue Hospital Medical College. So he was the exciting young man that everybody loved and admired. But his little brother, Will, he was shy and insecure. Everyone in his family thought he was dumb. He needed glasses and didn't know that till he was 20 years old. By sitting in the back, he couldn't see the blackboard, and he was called an imbecile or a dimwit. His father didn't want to send him to school after the age of 10 because there was no point in it. If you have a brother or sister, then you've probably experienced a little sibling rivalry. Tom, that's Star Wars comic book episode one. It's mine. But for John Harvey and Will, it was different. From a young age, John Harvey basically waged psychological warfare on his brother. He tattled every time Will stepped out of line. He beat him up. He verbally abused him. They fought for so long and did so much damage to one another. And those leave scars. Of course, you've heard of the Kelloggs. One of these brothers has his name spelled out in bright red cursive in grocery stores around the world, on boxes of Rice Krispies, mini wheats, and cornflakes. From Business Insider, this is brought to you by... Brands you can trust. Brands you know, stories you don't. I'm Charlie Herman. Will and John Harvey Kellogg made each other's lives miserable. They bullied each other as adults. They stole from each other as business partners. And as corporate rivals, their disagreements escalated all the way to the Michigan State Supreme Court. But the Kelloggs were also a brilliant team. John Harvey's medical theories helped improve the health of Americans. Will was an ingenious businessman who created a whole new standard for marketing and branding. Together, the Kellogg brothers changed the way we eat breakfast. But which Kellogg is the one we remember today? Stay with us. In the early 1890s, the Kellogg brothers worked together at a health retreat in Battle Creek called the Sanitarium. It was John Harvey's brainchild. 
By that point, he was an accomplished doctor who toured around the country, had written dozens of articles and books, and performed many operations. He had to be the major domo of his sanitarium. Again, Howard Markell. He's meticulously researched and reconstructed John Harvey and Will Kellogg's lives using old letters, scrapbooks, legal depositions, interviews, and other archival documents. John Harvey had to be, you know, in charge. He was the conductor of the band. And uh, to a lot of his employees, he was quite difficult, especially if you displeased him. To his guests, to his patients, he was the most wonderful man on earth. Patients came to the sanitarium from all over the country. Dr. John Harvey Kellogg ran special exercise classes. They would have sounded like this. Arms rigid and move them eight or ten inches down and up at each count. Ready? Begin. One, two, one, two, one. Jazzercise, anyone? One, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. He examined the patients individually. He went into the dining room and had dinner with people who were eating the Kellogg way. Choo, 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 that is the thing to do. At every meal, Dr. Kellogg, or someone he appointed, made sure guests chewed every bite of food at least 40 times before swallowing. To help count down the time, they sang the chewing song. You can hear it recreated in The Road to Wellville, a semi-historical comedy about the sanitarium. A lot of the people who came to the Battle Creek Sanitarium had bad stomachs or ulcers or that great American disease, constipation and indigestion, dyspepsia. And if you think of what Americans ate back then, you know, a lot of heavily fried and fatty foods, you know, very heavy foods. There was no light diet. No kale salads. No kale, no roughage. <laughs> Dr. John Harvey Kellogg was America's general in its war against constipation. He fed his troops bland meals with nuts, fruits, and dense whole grains. He encouraged them to make big lifestyle changes. And he also had a theory of something called auto-intoxication. I love this. That food products, meat products in particular, would stay in your gut and fester and pollute your body and give off poisons, toxins that would make you feel bloated and constipated, depressed, stupid, all sorts of things. So he blamed everything on flesh eating. Flesh eating and smoking, alcohol, caffeine, none of which were allowed at John Harvey's sanitarium. Oh, and one other thing. He was very much against what he called the solitary vice of masturbation. Uh, we don't give that medical advice anymore, I can assure you. But at the time, John Harvey's ideas were not considered fringe or bizarre. They were groundbreaking. His research on diet was nominated for a Nobel Prize in Medicine or Physiology. People were just obsessed with constipation. Uh, a good bowel movement was the most important thing in American life. Nobody talks about that, but I can assure you, having spent you know seven or eight years reading about this stuff, it was really on the minds of a lot of people at the time, even presidents of the United States. John Harvey Kellogg treated William Howard Taft, Warren G. Harding, Calvin Coolidge, FDR. And on and on and on, who came to Battle Creek for free, of course. Thomas Edison and Henry Ford used to come. Amelia Earhart, Booker T. Washington, Eleanor Roosevelt, 
the comedian Eddie Cantor. They stayed on the sanitarium's sprawling, state-of-the-art campus where they could roam the rolling hills, visit the zoo, and attend lectures and orchestra performances. It had three different gymnasia. It had massages of every kind under the sun and uh, water baths and an enema room or... Uh, you could get all kinds of enemas. Uh, it had all kinds of examination rooms and operating rooms and laboratories and patient rooms. And while John Harvey took full credit for the sanitarium and its success, he did not run it alone. In fact, without the help of his younger brother, Will, John Harvey probably would have run it into the ground. He hired him as a 20-year-old to really be what we'd call today the COO, the chief operating officer of this vast sanitarium, which had, you know, thousands of rooms and bedsheets and maids and orderlies and masseuses and cooks and what have you. Will Kellogg managed all of that staff. And on top of that, he helped launch the sanitarium's spin-off businesses, like a publishing company, a clothing line, and eventually breakfast foods. And despite the fact he was incredibly good at what he did, he was constantly being derided and undercut by John Harvey Kellogg, who was grandiose and great to everyone else, but took it all out on his little brother. This was not a wholesome case of two brothers keeping it in the family and going into business together. No, this was one incredibly powerful man taking advantage of the fact that his little brother was desperate and out of a job. For years, John Harvey wouldn't allow Will to have his own office at the sanitarium. He had Will follow him around with a notepad so he could jot down every one of his genius ideas. And that meant when John Harvey rode his bike around the sanitarium campus, Will would have to run alongside to keep up with him. Even when John Harvey paused for one of his five daily bowel movements, he would make Will come into the bathroom with him to take notes as he dictated so he wouldn't miss a single golden thought. And that really, I think, explains the relationship to a T. And Will was quiet, but he hated it. He hated it. Most weeks, Will worked seven days a week at the sanitarium, logging hundreds of hours away from his family. And when he asked for a day off, even on Christmas, his big brother would call him lazy. I mean, he would say really harsh, mean things to him. I mean, how would you like to work seven days a week and be told you're lazy? Why do you think John was so cruel to him? Because he could. And uh, there was a mean streak in John where he liked to dominate people. And he was very good, like a lot of bullies, of knowing who's he considered to be weak or at least somebody he could bully successfully. Will had five kids and a mortgage to worry about, so he kept working for his brother. And even though John Harvey would never admit it, Will's involvement was crucial to the success of the sanitarium. Dr. Kellogg may have been the charmer, the draw for the rich and famous, but it was Will who made sure that the sanitarium could pay its bills. Beginning in the 1890s, the brothers tried to make a cereal, a grain product that was easily digested. Today, we all know what cereal is. You might have even eaten a bowl this morning. But in the 1890s, what John Harvey and Will were trying to create was a brand new thing. Pre-cooked, ready-to-eat, safe breakfast cereals did not exist. At first, Will was not convinced John Harvey's latest obsession was a good use of his time. His older brother was asking him to spend hours crouched under a hand-crank roller, catching flattened dough and chiseling off tiny flakes. But John Harvey had this idea that if you baked grain at an extremely high heat, its complex sugars and starches would break down and make it easier to digest. First, they worked on 
wheat cereals and they boiled it and they baked it and they broke it up into little tiny crumbs and that was popular. But it took a long time before they figured out how to flake cereal. The story of how the Kellogg's came up with wheat flakes is different depending on who you believe. John Harvey said the recipe was revealed to him in a dream. His wife said she helped him come up with it. And Will insisted it was a partnership between him and John. Whatever did happen, someone... They left some dough overnight. It got a little sour. And bakers will call that tempering dough. The water content of the dough evens out. And then when you bake it at a high heat, you can break it up into flakes as opposed to little crumbs. That was a eureka moment. It was the invention of flaked cereal. The brothers debuted their creation in the sanitarium's dining room, and guests lined up for seconds and thirds. They ate flakes with milk, cream, and yogurt. And by all accounts, Dr. Kellogg's wheat flakes made their bowel movements like clockwork. And who doesn't like to be regular? Dr. Kellogg may have been a medical prodigy, but he was bad at branding. He called the first ever breakfast cereal Granos, which, like some of his other names for foods he created, Granula, Nuttos, Protos, did not sound particularly exciting or delicious. It didn't matter. People loved the cereal. Will set up a makeshift factory at the sanitarium and started selling the flakes in 10-ounce packs for 15 cents each. In its first year of production, the brothers sold over 113,000 pounds of cereal, both at the sanitarium and through mail order. In the creation of the wheat flakes and the cereal that's being sold at the sanitarium, in the history of food, how big of a deal is this? It was a huge deal because all of a sudden you could have an instant breakfast. Pour it out of a box, pour milk on it, you eat it. Even dad could make breakfast now. <laughs> I have used that line so many times. Well, it works. Keep going with it. <laughs> it always gets a laugh. If you think of what a housewife had to do to make breakfast, say, in 1890, you know, she had to start the wood stove. If she made oatmeal, which were whole grain oats, you had to cook that for an hour or more. If you made barley or, or rice, that took time. If you fried up things like sausages or bacon uh, or potatoes were often used as an early morning, this took time, and suddenly, you freed up a couple hours uh, with a cheap, nutritious, and tasty breakfast. At first, Will kept working on the wheat flakes dough because his brother told him to. But the notes he left behind show that he became as invested in perfecting wheat flakes as his brother. He kept track of every batch of flakes he produced and paid attention to which variables, humidity, length of baking time, temperature, produced the crispest cereal. He obsessed over the machinery and helped come up with a special roller that flattened the dough to the perfect thickness and consistency. In 1895, Will's brother filed a patent for the flake cereal and the method of preparing it. But there was only one name on the application. John Harvey Kellogg. He held the patent, but does that mean he was the inventor of it? Yeah, well, he would say that. <laughs> of course he would. And that Will was his secretary and just took orders, and he was just a lackey. It was his idea, it was his thought process, you know, et cetera, et cetera. John Harvey knew he had a big discovery on his hands. But to Will's great frustration, John Harvey wasn't that interested in turning wheat flakes into a big commercial enterprise. He cared more about its health benefits than the massive amounts of money Will thought they were leaving on the table. Doctors at that time had to be very careful of putting their names on products or advertising them if they wanted to be accepted 
by the high-class elite doctors, not the quacks, but the people at Johns Hopkins or Harvard, the people at the AMA or the American College of Surgeons. And despite John's wackier views, he wanted dearly to be accepted by the medical profession, the, the established medical profession, and he uh, did not want to be you know, ostracized. So if you advertised products, you would get in a lot of trouble back then. By the late 1890s, the Kellogg's makeshift factory at the sanitarium was too small to keep up with orders for Dr. John Harvey Kellogg's famous Granos. Will had to rent out a two-story building downtown, but the brothers had another problem on their hands. One of their kitchen assistants had stolen their recipe and was selling a brand new cereal right under their noses in Battle Creek. That man was Charlie, or C.W., Post. And as far as Will could tell, John Harvey didn't plan to do anything about it. That's after the break. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back. When John Harvey and Will Kellogg invented wheat flakes, an innovation in ready-to-eat cold breakfast cereal. It changed the world because breakfast is, you know, a very important meal in the day, and it changed the way we start our day collectively. And their customers weren't the only ones to take note. In the years after John Harvey received his patent for wheat flakes, people started showing up and checking out Battle Creek for any possible business ventures. By 1905, 101 new cereal companies had been established in the city, and the one posing the biggest threat to Will and John Harvey's business was Charlie Post, the man who founded Post Cereals. In the 1890s, Charlie Post was a broken-down 36-year-old businessman, and he came to Battle Creek to try to heal. He had a bad stomach, couldn't even afford to stay at the sanitarium. It was too expensive, so he stayed at one of the boarding houses. He actually worked in the kitchen to try to pay his way. And there he learned several of the recipes. Host ripped off a few of John Harvey and Will's creations before he ever got to their flaked cereal. But the one that really got the brothers' attention was a cereal called Grape Nuts. It was basically the same as one that the Kellogg's had created, but with some sweetener added, something John Harvey would never have done. All told, by 1900, Post was making around $3 million a year, over $90 million in today's money. Will went nuts. Will hated it. You know, we're giving away money. These are our products. We ought to make our own in mass advertise. He knew this in the early 1900s. They had many battles over this. And John said, you know, I can't advertise. And Will said, well, I'll advertise. We'll use my name. But no, we can't do that. And he held him back. And so 
uh, Kellogg's cornflakes or the Sanitas cornflakes that were made out of the sanitarium were selling hundreds of thousands of boxes a year, while C.W. Post right down the road was selling millions and millions of boxes a year. While John Harvey took the high road, insisting he didn't care what Post did as long as his cereals were helping improve people's digestion, Will, on the other hand, could not let it go. Will hated Post, and uh, Post once called Will Kellogg a dirty dog. And Will Kellogg said, well, you know what dirty dogs do to a Post. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if he actually said that or he had someone write that line, but it's pretty good. No, he hated him, and they both hated each other. But imagine inventing it or co-inventing it and seeing another guy steal it and make millions of dollars off of it. I mean, that's not a good feeling. No, it's like, I could do that. I mean, literally. Literally, literally, I did do that. (laughs) He did do that. Now, John Harvey had his own show going, so he was fine. He had adulation. He had success. But Will, who was now in his 40s and was still a lackey, saw this as his great, great opportunity. In the early 1900s, Will started experimenting with a new kind of cereal. He played with different ingredients like salt and sugar, which John Harvey would have never have let him get away with on his watch. Will tried different baking temperatures, and he abandoned his brother's wheat to produce a masterpiece. Golden flakes of corn. Corn flakes were Will's breakthrough. He knew they tasted good, better than wheat flakes, and he knew his brother would never agree to market them. So after 25 years of working for his brother, Will made one of the biggest decisions of his life. In 1905, he offered to buy his brother's cereal business, including the rights to manufacture and sell his brand new cornflakes. John Harvey was in debt and wasn't interested in selling and marketing his cereals himself, so he said yes. And at 46, Will Kellogg began his Battle Creek Toasted Cornflake Company, which we now know as the International Kellogg's. Will Kellogg could finally get himself an office. He'd be the boss of his own business, and he was ready to make some money. He asked all his employees to sign non-disclosure agreements, and he stationed a guard outside his factory's front door to prevent the Charlie Posts of the world from sneaking in and stealing his ideas. Because it turns out, Will Kellogg's knowledge of how to effectively run a business this big, that was invaluable. He understood operations. He understood machinery. He already knew about accounting methods and and inventory methods. And then he understood and studied how grocery stores worked. Will knew he had to make his brand a household name with American mothers, who did most of the shopping at that time. So he spent millions of dollars advertising in major magazines, newspapers, and ladies' journals. One campaign told women to go to the grocery store and wink at your grocer and you'll get a free box of cereal, which in 1910 is pretty racy stuff. Eventually, Will started working with the famous Leo Burnett Advertising Agency in Chicago, which worked on mascots for his kid-friendly cereals. Kellogg's Sugar Frosted Flakes are great! Tony the Tiger. I'll bet you don't know the name of the rooster on a box of cornflakes. Good morning, boss. Cornelius. (laughs) It was Cornelius. Cornflakes. How important was advertising? It was essential. It took a tiny little company in Battle Creek 
into everybody's home all around the country and later the world. Growing up in Oakland, California, even I had heard of Battle Creek. I knew it was where all these cereal companies were based because I saw it on the side of the boxes I read while eating my Fruit Loops. I couldn't understand why. Now I do. So it's interesting for a very insecure, beaten down, 46-year-old man. Most people don't embark on a successful career at that age. He had that feeling. Why does anybody who's a success become a success? Well, hard work, talent, but also you have to have a feeling deep in your gut, I can do this. And I think that's what he felt. As Will's cereal business grew, thanks in part to Cornelius and Snap, Crackle, and Pop, he did something that his brother decided was unforgivable. He put the name Kellogg on his cereal boxes, and he started signing his work on every box in big, swoopy, red cursive, W.K. Kellogg. John Harvey Kellogg just lost it. He hated it. He hated the fact that Will was doing well. He hated the fact that it was his invention. He hated the fact that he was using the name Kellogg. And their signatures actually were even somewhat similar. If you look at them, uh, they look a lot alike. And so he just went nuts. So he started making his own cereal, a pretty bad cereal, a rice flake cereal and calling it Kellogg's. After the break, this little cereal town wasn't big enough for two Kellogg's. Stay with us. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. We're back. In 1908, Will Kellogg was spending millions of dollars a year marketing his Kellogg's cornflakes under the name the Kellogg Toasted Cornflake Company when his older brother released a worse product with a really similar name, Kellogg's Food Company. I mean, quick pop quiz. Can you remember whose company was called what? I can't. And I have a script in front of me. So Will went to confront the brother who'd bullied him since childhood. Will said, please stop this. And he went to his house, and he asked him, as a brother, and uh, John was a real squirrely guy. You know, he was very hard to nail down. He was real hard to do business with. He said, sure, I'll stop. And then in another conversation, would threaten to copyright the name Kellogg's himself. John told Will he could keep using the family name if he paid him half a million dollars worth of stock in his company. Anyway, by 1910, 1911, Will had had it, and he asked a a judge to put an injunction against John Harvey Kellogg for making a Kellogg's-branded cereal. The Kellogg brothers were going to court. At stake was millions of dollars, both men's reputations and the name they shared. Who owned the name Kellogg? Was it John Harvey, the world-famous doctor, or Will, his kid brother, the cornflake king? I mean, it was, you know, it was epic. I mean, you had these two brothers fighting and fighting in the press. Oh, it was so ugly. And, you know, I was really hoping Netflix would buy my book because it'd be like such a great series. Actually, we agreed. 
So he hired actors to play the roles of John Harvey, Will K. Kellogg, was a Will, I contend now as I did at the time, and the judge. Order in my court. The case went to trial in 1910. John Harvey was the heavy favorite, but the doctor was a bad witness. First of all, he's very arrogant. There is no town of any size in the United States that has not sent people to the sanitarium. And he's very invested in being the Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, the author of 60 books, translated in, you know, hundreds of languages, international lecturer and expert and so on. In fact, from all parts of the world, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, all parts of England and South America. And he's also, he doesn't like to be contradicted by a lawyer. He's a real setup for a smart lawyer to say things, to get angry. The kind of witness that a cross-examining attorney loves. The kind of witness that lawyers dread if they're representing them because they just talk too much. John Harvey was all over the place on the witness stand. He went from defensive and sarcastic to kind of deeply reflective about his personality and flaws. Strong-willed, pugnacious, controversial, and skeptical. I keep these unpleasant traits under reasonable control, but when I get worn out, they become conspicuous and I appear to very poor advantage. Right, but if you are doing a cross-examination of him, you love him. You love him. Will K. Kellogg did it while in my employ, and I did it because he worked for me and he asked my consent to do it. And Will's turn on the stand was much less theatrical. Will was, you know, a very yes-no kind of guy. I couldn't stay. I don't know. And just as, you know, Muhammad Ali did the rope-a-dope, he'd be very good when an opposing lawyer was asking questions. Well, I, I don't recall that, or that may have happened. I think I did, but... I'm not positive. I couldn't say. I am unable to state the time. And Will, was, frankly, wasn't uh, above lying on the stand. You know, do you think your brother is famous for his work in nutrition? I'm not quite sure about that. Well, of course you are. Come on. That even to this day, I didn't know that Dr. Kellogg had any reputation as a dietitian or as an innovator in food products, health foods. And the- I mean, that, what, what did that tell you about Will's character? Well... Will loved to win. And as he became more and more successful, winning was more important than almost anything. In 1911, the brothers reached an out-of-court settlement. Will owned the Kellogg's trademark, but he would still let his brother call his business the Kellogg Food Company, but only as long as John Harvey kept the name off his cereal boxes. Will wanted to make sure that none of his customers were buying the wrong Kellogg's by accident. And that didn't sit well with uh, John Harvey Kellogg. Now, they reached a detente for a while, but then they kept fighting again for, for the next 10 years or so. When the national press reported on what happened next, they called it the Battle of the Bran. Still obsessed with his quest to engineer the perfect bowel movement, John Harvey started experimenting with a product he called Sterilized Bran. And it would move your bowels even better than cornflakes or wheat flakes, which is exactly what it does. Only this time, John Harvey didn't sit on his genius idea. He started calling the cereal Kellogg's Sterilized Bran, and he bought ads in Good Housekeeping and Ladies Home Journal. By 1916, he'd sold more than 600,000 boxes. And uh, Will, too, liked a good bowel movement. He didn't talk about it as much. And Will also liked beating his brother in the cereal business, so... Will made brand cereal that was basically a ripoff of John Harvey Kellogg's brand cereals. You can imagine the king of digestion 
you know, the medical doyen of bowel movements who created basically a palatable laxative and then it was stolen. So, uh, yeah, he pulled a CW post, basically. John Harvey filed a restraining order against his brother's company. One thing led to another, and in 1917, they were back in court. And again, it came down to the same question, who is Kellogg? And one of the great exhibits, by the way, that Will used to show that he was the real Kellogg were the uh, every ad he ever used and the budgets that it cost and the subscription rates of all the periodicals he advertised it. This to show the millions and millions of people who saw his name associated with his product and the millions and millions of dollars he spent to do so. The judge was Walter North, a widely respected man who is known for being fair. And in November of 1917, he looked down on the brothers from his bench, peered over spectacles, and read his verdict. I find that the facts and circumstances established by the proofs in this case are such as entitles the defendants to relief. He dismissed every single one of John Harvey's complaints. And he said Will was entitled to all the money John Harvey had made off his cereal in the last 10 years. It was a total victory for Will. He said that, you know, John, you're basically ripping off his idea. He's advertised to a fairly well. You can sell products under any other name. You don't have to, you know, sell your product with a similar signature right next to his. But the reality is when people see the name Kellogg's today, you think of Kellogg's cornflakes. And so he won. Well won. John Harvey appealed the case to the Michigan Supreme Court. They ruled unanimously, 8-0, to zero, in Will's favor. John also had to pay all of Will's legal bills, more than $2.5 million in today's money. By this point, has the younger brother surpassed his famous older brother in importance? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it never stopped. It never stopped because Kellogg's became more and more powerful and more successful. This victory did not change the fact that Will had spent so much of his life feeling beaten down, his lifelong struggles with his brother, with establishing his own business, that even after he'd finally won, the damage was done. He couldn't relate well to his children. Uh, he had very few friends. So what does it say about his character? He was an extremely lonely man, almost of the Charles Foster Kane, <laughs> Citizen Kane, where he could not relate to anybody because money and success Will became bitter, passive-aggressive, paranoid, and hostile. His marriages fell apart. Two of his sons broke off contact with him. After he died at the age of 91 years old, one of his grandsons described it as a relief, like a heavy weight had been lifted. So he got the ultimate revenge, but he couldn't enjoy it. And that, to me, is one of the great tragedies of the brothers Kellogg, is that they could never figure out how important each was to the other. And Will, who I found a very compelling figure. I liked writing about him. Um, it was a very sad man. To be that successful and that sad and lonely is, is really, you know, writers love to write about uh, conflict. And uh, there was conflict between the brothers, but there was great internal conflict in Will. It was never comfortable. For his part, John Harvey Kellogg became more and more eccentric as he grew older. He spent time in Florida, where guests at his home said he would sometimes walk around in his underwear to show off what great shape he was in. Will was so bothered by this that he once even considered filing a lawsuit forcing his brother to dress more appropriately. 
And then there was John Harvey's abiding interest in his own. Well, I'll let Dr. Markell explain. He had a healthy gut in that, and he even liked to offer his uh, bowel movements. He would put them in a container and offer them to others to smell because he was so healthy and ate so well they didn't smell bad. I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, I know he did it, but I don't know what it smelled like. People may have been polite and not actually yeah, yeah, told yeah, him that that is great, Dr. Kellogg. <laughs> That's great. great. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's where that came from. There's another reason that might account for John Harvey's slide into obscurity. If Will hadn't already torn the title of most respected Kellogg out of his hands, John might have taken himself out of the running. Like other scientists of his time, John Harvey became a vocal proponent of eugenics, which made the racist arguments that some people, usually white people, were born with superior genes and moral qualities. After the court case, John Harvey and Will Kellogg stopped talking to each other for a while. When they did meet, Will insisted upon having a third party in the room to witness what was said. But more than 20 years after the court handed Will his victory, John gave him something Will probably wanted even more. John wrote him an emotional letter, a mea culpa, from a man who was clearly full of regret. He knew the end was coming. And the thing about John, as difficult as he could be, He was at heart a good Christian man. And I think he wanted to make amends at that point of his life. And it was basically a letter saying, I was wrong and you were right. Your better balanced judgment has doubtless saved you from a vast number of mistakes of the sort I have made. And you have done remarkably well because of your talent and your business sense and all this stuff. And allowed you to achieve magnificent successes for which generations to come will owe you gratitude. But Will did not get the letter because John Harvey's secretary never sent it to him. His secretary filed it. She didn't want it to be sent because it made John Harvey look weak or, you know, whatever. I earnestly desire to make amends for any wrong or injustice of any sort I have done to you, and will be glad if you will give me a very definite and frank expression of anything I have said or done, which you feel should be justly designated unbrotherly or otherwise open to criticism. In 1942, a little over a year after John Harvey's secretary filed away the letter, the brothers met one last time. John Harvey didn't know why Will hadn't responded to his apology, and Will didn't know that the letter existed. He didn't know that John Harvey was sorry. The two met because the sanitarium was falling apart. It was deeply in debt, and even though John Harvey was no longer in charge, he was doing everything he could to rescue the last remnants of his legacy, including asking his brother for help. So John was trying to get money to keep the sanitarium on an even keel, while Will, behind the scenes, was doing everything he could to get it bankrupt (laughs) and say bad things about it. So at this very moment that John has written a letter to try and reconcile, his brother behind the scenes is actually trying to thwart him and undermine him. Undermine him and bury his legacy. Because the one thing that John had that would make his box of cornflakes was the sand. And they fought like cats and dogs. It was a several-hour meeting. It was it was very contentious. And then they never spoke again. And then John Harvey died a few months later. In 1948, someone was going through John Harvey's old filing cabinet when they found the sealed envelope addressed to Will. And so Will didn't get it for seven years later when his brother was long gone. How did Will respond when he got that letter seven years later? 
Well, that too is sad. I mean, that's another Citizen Kane-like moment. He was um, already blind from terrible glaucoma, so the letter had to be read to him. Uh, there were tears and silent stoicism, but it must, we don't know, it, it must have hurt him to the core. I hope that this note may find you more comfortable and that you have many years left to promote the splendid enterprises that have given the name you bear a place among the notable ones of our time. You know, he kept a picture in his wallet of John Harvey's grave. It's a tiny little headstone, but he kept it in his wallet and he gave copies of that picture to other people. You know, as much as they disliked each other, I think they loved each other. Uh, they were brothers, and each made the other better. There would not have been a great Battle Creek sanitarium and all the medical success that John Harvey Kellogg had if his little brother hadn't been running everything like a, a Swiss watch. And they needed each other and complimented each other, but they didn't know it. One would never have become successful without the other. Their success is just unmeasurable by most people's lives. Most of us, our names are not going to be remembered at all. Yet the Kellogg family from this tiny town in the middle of the state of Michigan, we're still talking about them. That is against all the odds. Howard Markell is a professor of the history of medicine at the University of Michigan and the author of The Kellogg's, The Battling Brothers of Battle Creek. This episode was produced by Sarah Wyman and Julia Press with me, Charlie Herman. Did you grow up eating Kellogg cereal? I was a huge fan of Fruit Loops and one from General Mills called Booberry. Do you remember that one? Let us know on our Facebook group what you ate. Just search Brought to You By Podcast. Or as always, you can find us on Twitter or send us an email at btyb at insider.com. Special thanks this week to Ben Roseberry, Christopher Gurr, Tim Wetzel, and Steve Wyman for reenacting that court case. Thanks also to Clara Banderas and Tyler Murphy. And thanks again to Howard Markell for taking the time to talk with us. He's one of the doctors who helped coin the term flatten the curve and has been helping to fight the coronavirus pandemic. And yet we called him to talk about Kellogg's. Sound design is by Bill Moss. Music is from Audio Network. John Delore and Casey Holford composed our theme. Our editor is Michaela Bly. Dan Bobkoff is the podfather. Sarah Wyman is our executive producer. Brought to you by is a production of Insider Audio. Howard, thank you very much. Thank you, Charlie. And I hope you had a good bowel movement today, too. Not yet. Well, may you always be regular. <laughs> may, the, may the regularity be with you. <laughs>